This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, challenge number one to drive innovation in the Defense Department. The bureaucracy has proven to be a lot more resilient than most secretaries of defense. And so you've got to keep the pressure on them each and every day. And a new view of cyber exercise. Whereas Cyber Committee, I think, works from the top down. They work from strategic on down to the tactical. We are working from the bottom up, so we're working from the tactical level up. So what really drives our exercise is the tactical training. It's Wednesday, July 6, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week, you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Air Force's Cloud One is, quote, the world's largest cloud instantiation for any commercial or government entity, according to the service's chief information officer. Lauren Nausenberger says the Air Force can move ahead on cloud deployments instead of waiting for the joint warfighter cloud capability contract that's coming later this year. Nausenberger says the Air Force is, quote, continuing to improve Cloud One. A new governing body will oversee the development of artificial intelligence in the Defense Department. The Chief Digital and AI Governing Council will replace the AI Executive Steering Group. The new Chief Digital and AI Officer, Craig Martell, will chair the council. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other Defense Scoop stories at fedscoop.com. The Defense Department has a new blueprint for using artificial intelligence. The Responsible AI Strategy and Implementation Pathway calls for a, quote, trusted ecosystem for using AI in the department. Major General Arnold Pinaro, U.S. Marine Corps, retired as Chief Executive Officer of the Pinaro Group and Chair of the Board of the National Defense Industrial Association. He's author of the book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. Arnold, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. What do you see as the role of AI and some of the other cutting-edge technology that the department is considering for countering what you write about in the book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force, where we have less hardware and fewer people? Well, Francis, it's always a privilege to be with you, and you certainly have identified one of the most important areas that our nation faces, not just our Department of Defense, which is what I would call including artificial intelligence, the emerging technologies. And our Department of Defense, uh, under past and current leadership, has identified some 10 to 14 emerging technologies that are critical to the success of our national defense, which primarily we want to deter our adversaries. And if unfortunately, if deterrence doesn't work to defeat our adversaries, and certainly there are many of them out there, and certainly two near peers with China and Russia, not to mention the threats from Iran, North Korea, and continuing global terrorism. Artificial intelligence is one of the most important, and it's important in the commercial world. It's important to our our country's economic competitiveness in the world, but it's also extremely important to our Department of Defense. Look, we've been uh, trading capital for labor for years in the Department of Defense. We have the most magnificent people serving on active duty in our military in the Guard and Reserve, But the all-volunteer force is hugely expensive, including the deferred compensation costs that we pay once people leave the military. And uh, it's gotten to the point where a lot of those costs are unsustainable. So we are looking to basically substitute these high technologies, uh, such as artificial intelligence, quantum, autonomy, um, things like that. And uh, I I applaud uh, Deputy Secretary Dr. Kath Hicks for leadership in this area. I might mention, too, Francis, you've been around a long time. You watch the Department of Defense, you watch government, and you know that 
as, as, as great as our Department of Defense is, it is a large bureaucracy. And getting things from the top translated down to the action officers and civilians in the department is a challenge. Uh, Dr. Hicks, is, who essentially the chief operating officer of the Department of Defense, is driving a lot of the needed changes from the top. And we're beginning to see some of that promise uh, become reality. I would say in conclusion to this question, it's neither moving as fast in government or in our industry or in our economy as it needs to be. It's an interesting citation there, Arnold, because I didn't have you on the program to talk about the duties of the former office of the deputy chief management officer, the chief management officer. But Secretary Hicks has really taken on very enthusiastically a lot of the responsibilities of that office as is appropriate since those uh, have been moved back to her office. So it strikes me that 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 autonomy and that leadership that she's undertaking are as important as what the actual technical aspects of the policies or the technologies themselves are. Absolutely. And she's got with Heidi Shu, the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering, with Bill LaPlante, the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, the strong technical leads in the military departments. Uh, Dr. Hicks and I, you and I have been around a long time. I've worked with every Deputy Secretary of Defense since the mid-70s, and I'm telling you right now, she's in the top you know, 1% of all the ones that have, because of the way she's driving change in the building. And, and it's essential in these high technology areas. Again, I want to emphasize, and at NDIA, since you mentioned my chairmanship there, uh, because of the vision of our previous chairman, Dick McCann, we've created the Emerging Technologies Institute and brought in Dr. Mark Lewis and Dr. Arun Serafin, two of our country's top experts in this field, to help drive the change in the department, but also in our economy. So we're working with the department, we're working with our industries, including the non-traditional suppliers, to make sure people are making the right investments uh, in these technologies that are needed. And if you look at what's happening on the battlefield in Ukraine, certainly the bravery and the courage of the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people is making a difference. But if you look at it, uh, one of the things that's helping them a lot is technology from the West, particularly from the United States, that our industries have developed over the years. Government doesn't build anything anymore. All these things come from our industry. And our industry is, is, is really always focused on the mission of doing what we need for the warfighters. And these high technologies are definitely what our warfighters need for the future. Isn't the war college lesson that people are going to study for years and years out of Ukraine, Arnold, the idea that, yes, we can say what we want about the lack of preparation and the lack of ability and so on, lack of competence among the Russian fighting forces. But even so, Russia's incapable fighting force against what is really just a small force in Ukraine, technology has to be the force multiplier that we'll study for years and years and years in the future in that in that conflict, isn't it, Arnold? Yes, you're spot on on that. But I, I would say we got to be really careful in that right now in sort of the close-in battle where they're fighting artillery to artillery and, and in a ways hand-to-hand, Russia's doing pretty well right now because they have massive artillery that they're using thousands and thousands of rounds a day. But you're right. It's the high technology that the West has given them, the Ukrainians, that has made it a little bit more of a fair fight. But frankly, we're not doing enough. We should not be telling the Ukrainians they can't hit targets in Russia and Belarus. We ought to be able to disrupt Russia's resupply and reinforcement from Mother Russia. We also need to give them a heck of a lot more of the longer range missiles. We should give them sophisticated air defenses, just like we do in Saudi Arabia 
against the Houthi missiles, just like we do um, in Israel with Iron Dome against the Gaza rockets. We should certainly be able to do that for Ukraine. For those that basically wring their hands a little bit and they worry about escalation, I say the, escal the, the risk of Russia defeating Ukraine is far less than the risk of Russia winning, which would send a signal to Iran, North Korea, and China, go ahead and use military might to achieve your aims because the West is not going to be there to stop you. Arnold, I want to go back to that list of emerging technologies that you talked about a moment ago. The most recent one that I recall seeing is Heidi Shue's list. You mentioned her as well. Her list of 14 emerging technologies that R&E is tracking. What do you see as the most important things for the department to do to maximize each of these items as they look at them? First of all, it's the, the leadership. She's a human dynamo. Her deputy is Dr. Honey. They're really, really good. And they are basically kicking butt in the department, which they need to do to get the system to move in the right direction. And they're holding our industry accountable. They're, she's very engaged with our industry, telling our CEOs and particularly the chief technology officers in our industry and in the non-traditional suppliers, here's what we really need. And guess what? If you invest, we're gonna, there's, you're going to get a return on investment. So as you know, in the commercial world and in the for-profit world that we operate in, uh, if you're going to ask companies to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in developing quantum or developing autonomy or developing directed energy or 5G, they've got to understand uh, there, there's got to be a return on the investment and not the Pentagon's going to change their mind you know, every six months. I don't see that happening right now. But we're just we're just getting underway. General John Hyten, the recent vice chair of the Joint Chiefs, probably one of our smartest technological persons, sees this as the is a really, really important area. He thinks we're moving too slowly. General C.Q. Brown, the second the chief of staff of the Air Force, thinks we're moving too slowly. And we are. Everybody that I talk to, uniform or civilian inside the building, says the same thing. We need to speed up. We're moving too slow. What do you see as the most important impediments to remove to be able to do that, Arnold? Two impediments. One, Congress needs to do their work on time. If they could pass the budgets on time and not have continuing resolutions that run for six months, eight months, where you can't invest in the new technologies that the Pentagon is asking for, particularly at a time of high inflation, when you're flat and spending at last year's level and inflation is, is eating your purchasing power. And then I think you've got to basically get the 35,000 contracting officers in the Department of Defense and the 154,000 people that work in the acquisition bureaucracy to basically do what they're being told by the senior leadership. Uh, the bureaucracy has proven to be a lot more resilient than most secretaries of defense. And so you've got to keep the pressure on them each and every day. Arnold Pinaro, it's always great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks very much for your time. Anytime. Such a privilege. You can read more in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. A cyber exercise the National Guard has completed is tightening the Guard's collaboration with U.S. Cyber Command. Lieutenant Colonel Cameron Sprague of the Connecticut Guard is executive director for Cyber Yankee. My Defense Group colleague Mark Pomerlo asked him what the mission of Cyber Yankee is. So the primary objective of Cyber Yankee has always been the train National Guard teams for incident response uh, for critical infrastructure, CITR, SICKER. So that was this year's primary objective this year. Uh, and when we say National Guard, we mean joint, both Army and Air Guard. 
Mm-hmm. And actually, this year, we actually opened, expanded the scope and actually trained uh, active duty personnel from the Navy, Coast Guard, Air Force, Air Force Reserve, uh, to do that as well. So when we talk about training them to do instant response, that's everything from the very tactical level, i.e. logging into a firewall, configuring a firewall, uh, logging into a Windows server, uh, looking at logs on the bank controller, you know, very tactical things, to how, how to run an operation, how to run an instant response, uh, how, how to lead a team, how to task organize, um, how to use intelligence injects and using your intelligent personnel, um, how to communicate, um, and how to run operations. So that's, that's kind of, uh, we really don't in this exercise go at the strategic. We're not really a strategic exercise. We're more a, um, tactical with a little bit of operational focus sprinkled in, but this year was very tactical. So that was our primary, primary goal. Uh, secondary goal is to train with industry partners. Um, and again, again, both of these goals, I probably should mention, both these goals are built off of the President Biden's interim national security strategic guidance, which he released in March 2021, where he said, I'll read it, he said, making cybersecurity a top priority, strengthening our capability, readiness, and resilience in cyberspace. So that's the first thing is ready for its response. Then he says we will encourage collaboration between private sector and government at all levels. So that's our second thing is collaborating with the private sector, which in this case is power companies, water companies, uh, natural gas pipeline. Mm-hmm. So we're going off of the president's, president's guidance here, his strategic guidance. That's what we filled our exercise around. So those are really our two focus objectives. Uh, the third focus objective is to continue to tell our story about the guard, which I'm, I'm doing right now, talking to you, uh, and which we did during our DV day. We had, uh, I think we had over a hundred DVs present, uh, coming and seeing the exercise. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, the, the active component is really interesting. Was, was that kind of like in a, in a disco role that, that you were, uh, that they were participating? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, it, it's something that's, it's something that's, I would say, fairly new in this domain, the active component, uh, doing disco. It's not unprecedented active component doing disco. Uh, it, it happened quite a lot in the last two years during COVID operations. I think almost many, if not all, states had what's known as a dual SAS command stood up, which is uh, an officer that works for the governor, but that can command active forces. So in Connecticut, for instance, we had active forces. We had active Air Force personnel in hospitals in Hartford and New Haven. Uh, as part of a response. So there was a precedent for active component doing DISCA. Uh, it certainly happened, I think, during Katrina's rail hurricanes. Uh, this really is the first time I've ever really known it to be exercised in cyber. But certainly if there was a large-scale cyber event, uh, we 
want to do it with active components. So that's why we exercised it this year. Yeah, well, I, I know um, I, they, they did away with it, but, you know, Cyber Command's kind of annual capstone cyber flag, I think they used to do Cyber Guard ahead of time, and, and I, I think that they would kind of tie in a DISCA element to it, but I, they, they don't really do that anymore. So I, I know that, that, that they focused on it a little bit, but um, is this just kind of, you know, from, from this, from a Cyber Yankee perspective, is this kind of just trying to, like, flex those muscles and work those relationships right now in, in case you would need to, to do a, a DISCA response or something? Is this kind of just working on, on those mechanisms, essentially? Yeah, I would say that's absolutely true. Um, whereas Cyber Command, I think, works from the top down. They work from strategic on yeah. down to the tactical. We are working from the bottom up, so we're working from the tactical level up. So what really drives our exercise is the tactical training. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from that, that's driven now more partnerships where this year we had over 30 hands-on keyboard operators from various partners, various sicker partners. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's driving more and more partnership. And actually this year we had something I didn't mention yet is we had this year probably the strongest partnership we've ever had with Cyber Command and using the Cyber 9 line tool. Uh, I don't know how much you know about that, but it's a tool that basically allows us to engage with U.S. Cyber Command and send them uh, indicators of compromise, uh, things like that. And then um, they have the ability to take uh, yeah. offense action. Yeah, uh, no, yeah I'm, 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 I'm definitely familiar with it. I know that that, that was a component to the exercise last year. Um, like, did you guys advance that at all this year? And was that part of maybe some of the the the, the DISCA uh, component to this at all? It was. Yeah, I think last year we might have done one or two separate nine lines. This year, I believe we did over thirty separate nine lines in the Cyber Command. Um, and so we were when we did the over these thirty nine lines, they went in directly into Cyber Command. Uh, they went into the Dark Cyber Command's jock floor. Yep. The Cyber Command, you know, actioned those nine lines. In an exercise scenario, obviously, but they, like, exercised actioning the nine line. And, and with, uh, since this was kind of uh, a nation-state focus, did that go the opposite way, too? Were they kind of feeding you guys some of that real-world intelligence that, that they're gathering in, in their operations? No. No, they, they didn't. Uh, but that's deliberate. The deliberate reason for that is because our exercise is at an unclassified level. Okay. So, uh, to enable to enable openness with our partners, with our uh, private sector partners, we deliberately operate Cyber Yankee at an unclassified level. So Cyber Yankee, there's nothing that we do is classified. All the TTPs and everything are unclassified. Um, so that that limits, though, obviously real-world intelligence. Um. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I know that that's kind of, that's also an, an added benefit to the nine line, right? It's kind of a two way street. They can feed uh, real world intelligence to kind of tip off the states, maybe if if there's a potential attack, and then in, in turn the states, if they're seeing you know, anomalous behavior or malware, they can send it to Cyber Command to either uh, analyze or you know take action in red space potentially. Yeah. So this 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 year's intent, the big big picture was. For this, these six states and their people to go go home and realize, hey, this thing exists, and I use an exercise. And if something happens in my state, 
I can then use it during that incident. It really comes back from, uh, it really comes back from me, my personal experience. So I'm a, I'm a cyber guy in Connecticut. I'm in, in charge of like Connecticut's real world cyber incident response. And about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, we had a major cyber attack against our capital city, Harvard. I think it's a school system and then municipal government. And during that process, the Connecticut National Guard responded, brought the schools uh, back up, brought kids back to school, and also used the nine line during that. Uh, it was really one of the first times the nine line had been used in a rural scenario. And it was really successful. Cyber Command actually took the intelligence we used and took actions with it, um, the intelligence we had put in, the stuff we had put in. So we, our goal this year was to kind of push that experience out to the other states, New England, and train all their people um, how to do that mm-hmm. as part of advice. Yeah, I mean, what, what would you say was kind of the, 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 the takeaway? You know, you, doing this, uh, you know, 30 times as opposed to two last year, you know, what was their kind of, what were the reactions and what was kind of the takeaway in terms of educating these other states and, and, and really um, increasing the, the, the awareness of, of the nine line this year? Uh, so the takeaway was, uh, the first takeaway was we, we trained a lot of people how to do nine lines, and now they know it exists. And if something happens in the home states, they can go and pull out and fill out their food box and use it. Uh, the second thing was uh, Cyber Command really didn't have any policy or guidance around the nine line. Uh, and now, based on this exercise, they're going to go out and develop more granular policy and what kind of what they're looking for, uh, which will benefit, like, everyone nationwide um, for it. So it's really... To, to me, to me, from what I've what I've seen and everyone I talked to, it's really advanced the nine line quite a bit. Uh, because the other exercises, even even Cyber Shield this year, had minimal use of the nine line, whereas we really focused on the nine line it, because it, honestly, it'll be very critical uh, if this ever happens in the real world. Lieutenant Colonel Cameron Sprague with my Defense Scoop colleague Mark Pomerlow. You can read more about Cyber Yankee in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. One of America's closest allies will spend up to a billion dollars on innovation, and the Army has a new plan for its integrated tactical network. John Harper's managing editor of Defense Scoop, Mark Pomerlo, reporter for Defense Scoop. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. John, I start with you. NATO is offering to spend a billion dollars on its innovation fund. What's in it for them and what's in it and what is the responsibility, if any, for the United States? Welcome. Uh, thanks for having me on, Francis. It's going to be used uh, to support startups and other organizations uh, that are working on dual-use technologies. In other words, technologies that could have civilian or um, military uh, uses. Um, and it's a pretty wide range uh, of things that are uh, included in that. Um, some of the technologies uh, that were highlighted include artificial intelligence, autonomy, big data processing, quantum-enabled technologies, biotechnology, and human enhancement, novel materials, energy, propulsion, and space. So as you can see from that list, uh, you know, it's pretty wide-ranging, uh, includes a lot of different technologies that the commercial sector is working on, 
that the uh, military labs um, are also working on. And uh, NATO's billing this as the world's first multi-sovereign venture capital fund involving 22 uh, different nations. Uh, And the idea is to make long-term investments in these technologies. And uh, this current iteration of this fund will have a 15-year timeline um, to try to build up those technologies so that they can eventually be adopted by NATO militaries. You write, the United States will contribute to that initiative by facilitating access to U.S. test centers and other technology accelerator sites in the, quote, uh, extensive and diverse U.S. innovation sector. And that's according to a White House release. Do we know yet what the accelerator sites are that NATO will be able to interact with? Or is that yet to be determined, John? Uh, I think that's yet to be determined. Um, It will include more than 60 test centers across Europe and North America, which, uh, you know, is a a pretty impressive number. Um, I don't know specifically which uh, Defense Department or uh, U.S. commercial sites uh, will be part of that, but certainly there will be sites here in the U.S. um, that these innovators will have access to to help further their technologies, which I thought was a a very notable aspect of this. So it's not just money um, that's going to, you know, go towards uh, pushing these uh, technologies. There's this complementary um, defense innovation accelerator uh, for the North Atlantic. NATO's calling it uh, their Diana um, initiative. Um, and so those two efforts are, are very complementary and uh, are, are intended to work together to to further uh, a, w- a really wide range um, of technologies that, uh, again, are, are a dual use. Um, so it's not just, you know, military organizations that are working on these things. It's, uh, you know, organizations in the commercial sector uh, and these technologies could be applied uh, pretty widely. Mark Pomerleau, you're writing under the headline, Army Live Fire Exercise Helps Refine Forthcoming Tactical Network Equipment. And the piece of this that jumped out at me was this sentence, Army's adopted a multi-year strategy involving the incremental development and delivery of new capabilities to its integrated tactical network, including a combination of program of record systems and commercial off-the-shelf tools. What is at play here and what is the significance of that combination of off-the-shelf stuff and stuff the Army's developing uh, more proprietarily? Sure, Francis. Well, um, you know, I, I think the, the big takeaway here not isn't necessarily that, that the, this live fire happened, but really this is sort of the, the culmination of this new process that you alluded to. Um, in, in the past, uh, systems were developed um, or competed and bid and, and, and delivered to the field. Now the Army really has this iterative process of every two years, they're developing incremental capabilities. And uh, with that, a series of, of tests and demonstrations to get a lot of soldier feedback to be able to, in this developmental process, really work with soldiers to understand where some of the gaps are, what technologies don't work, uh, either technically or within the soldiers' uh, concepts for the way that they fight. So that way, when they get to the time to field these units, uh, all those kinks should be worked out. All these systems should be able to integrate with the platforms and there should be uh, very limited problems. now, that, that was the goal for this uh, recent live fire. It followed a critical design review for the Army's capability set 
2023 build, which uh, again is kind of the second iteration of this integrated tactical network building upon uh, the first iteration in 2021, which focused solely on um, light uh, airborne infantry units. This uh, current iteration is focusing on uh, striker formations for, for 2021. What I didn't see here is, is there a connection here or structural um, formation that connects with the big six priorities of the army? Or is that concept kind of gone by the wayside? Or what does that look like as the army continues its modernization effort? Mark? Sure. So this is this is one of those big six okay. modernization priorities here, the, the network. And so... Um, the leaders within the Army's network community, their, their program executive office, their network cross-functional team uh, have really gone to pains to kind of refine this process. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I get into in my story um, is they're really looking at improving the instrumentation of their network uh, as they're continuing to architect, develop, and deliver this system, they need the types of tools to be able to instrument how the network is working. Uh, are, can they see what the traffic looks like? Can they instrument it from a threat perspective, be it cyber or electronic warfare, um, both from a lab-based perspective as well as out in the field? So um, that's one of the lessons that, that they're taking away is, is improved instrumentation um, to deliver this this network, which again is um, one of the big six army priorities right now. It's great reporting from both of you on both of these stories, and we have links to both of them in the show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. Mark, what are you paying attention to in the week ahead? Sure. So uh, NDIA is having their annual uh conference on Monday focused on JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control, uh, the Pentagon's uh, emerging concept that seeks to uh, connect all sensors and shooters together to improve decision making. Uh, there's going to be leaders from inside the government as well as, as uh, the contracting think tank and academia community all getting together to kind of talk about and hash out uh, what this concept means and what it is going forward. Um, this is kind of on the heels of uh, a recent gathering of the, the top service chiefs to discuss progress that they've made here and also articulate maybe some other war fighting concepts associated with this ahead. John, what's ahead for you this week, sir? Um, I'm going to take a look at the issue of uh, semiconductors, uh, specifically um, as it relates to uh, how they can be used for military systems. There was an interesting new report uh, that just came out from the Georgetown Center for Strategic and Emerging Technology about uh, the challenges of trying to limit uh, China's military's access to U.S. designed uh, semiconductors. Um, and, you know, these uh, chips uh, uh, can be used for a uh, you know, variety of military systems. Uh, this report focuses uh, specifically on some of the uh, AI systems that the Chinese military is working on. So uh, I want to talk to some folks um, about that and some of the challenges there and the recommendations uh, that they have for dealing with that. Um, and then, of course, uh, the Biden administration has been strongly pushing the uh, so-called CHIPS Act, um, which would include substantial funding to try to boost uh, domestic manufacturing uh, of these types of chips. Um, you know, currently there are significant vulnerabilities in the global supply chain. Uh, Taiwan and South Korea uh, in particular um, manufacture a lot of these chips, even the ones that are designed in the U.S. 
Um, and so that, you know, presents a dual challenge uh, on the one hand that, you know, U.S. supply chain is is vulnerable um, uh, on sort of an international level. Um, and then also China has been able to access uh, chips for their military from some of these uh, uh, overseas suppliers. And uh, the U.S. has been trying to uh, do what it can to mitigate that. But there are certainly some challenges uh, involved there as, as uh, both the U.S. and China and other countries uh, use semiconductors for their weapon systems and uh, as they pursue artificial intelligence technologies uh, that could be applied for military use cases. John Harper, Mark Pomerlow of Defense Scoop. Thanks both very much. Great coverage as always. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about all these stories and see their coverage throughout the coming week with the links in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop podcast returns next Wednesday. Till then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.